0: Welcome to the Rucks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins and I'm connected remotely to my colleagues Mark Pringle. Hi Barney. Martin Collier. Hi Barney. And Jasper Amiris and Bowie. Hello Barney. Also on our screens today is our very special guest Tony Russell. Hi Tony.
1: Hello everyone. Oh,
0: <laughs> Hi. Later we'll be talking about Gillian Welsh and the Everly Brothers and Bonnie Whaler and other things but right now it's just Wonderful to welcome one of the great writers on classic blues and country music and the author of several superb books, including Rural Rhythm, published this month by Oxford University Press. Tony, we've had your work on Rock's Back Pages for some years now. We're very grateful for that. Tell us how you first came to write about American roots music in the early 70s or maybe even earlier than that. How did you stumble on this incredible music in the first place?
1: Okay. It's the early to mid-60s. I'm in my mid-teens, and I'm listening, as we did, to popular music. My head, you know, always wedged against a tinny speaker to pick up Radio Luxembourg, and <laughs> it's borne in on me. I find all this stuff fascinating. The whole world of of, of pop music, I mean, not the, the, the artists, the the record labels, the the stuff in small italics underneath the song, which it took me a long time to realize was giving you the name of the songwriter. (laughs) All these little details about records, the objects themselves fascinated me. And I bought the pop press. And so I'm reading about the stuff, I'm listening to it. And I come to realize through both of these media that what I'm really interested in is what, what gets through to me most most uh, penetratingly is black American music of the kind that was then generally called R&B. Uh, so I'm talking about things like the early Tamla Motown artists and Stax figures. Those you could hear occasionally on British radio, you very seldom heard the people that I then became particularly interested in, which was the Chicago blues musicians like Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf and Jimmy Reed they were almost inaccessible, and so that was part of the charm. right? Really. you read about them in the pop papers, or at least you read about them in Record Mirror. New Record Mirror was much the most yep. avant-garde of these <laughs> papers in those days for me. Norman Jopling. Norman Joplin. <laughs> I, 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 I once years later, when he was acting as a publicist for some record company, and he called me as a publicist for another, and he introduced himself, and I was incoherent with fan worship. <laughs> Because I said, you're responsible for my being sitting here. You know, you turned me on to all these people. I realize now, and I'm sure Norman would agree, if you look back at them, the pieces are nothing special. He used to write, you know, there was a series called The Great Unknowns, yes. which gives you some notion of how, how these people were regarded. <laughs> these were people who were making a perfectly good living in Chicago and elsewhere, <laughs> but they were great unknowns to the new record Mirror. <laughs> you know, it might be a piece on Howling Wolf, say, and it would be a couple of paragraphs cobbled from album sleeve notes. And And a list of singles currently available that have been culled from some American catalogue. But there's this guy called Howling Wolf, and he comes from Mississippi. And he's been in Memphis and Chicago. And he's done songs called Killing Floor and Do the Do and (laughs) Smokestack (laughs) Lightning. What is this stuff? I mean, this is so absolutely not Dickie Valentine and Lita Rosa. (laughs) This is music... I, I can't even get a, a sense of what it must sound like because nobody is ever playing it. So all I can do is read about it and kind of slaver slightly at the mouth. <laughs> but then fortunately for once the record industry came to my aid and they started putting out some of these this hardline R and B stuff in in Britain. There was uh, Pye with the international R&B series. Guy, with Guy Stevens. Guy Stevens was another, yes, with Sue Records. And he also wrote for Record Mirror.
2: Exactly. Wrote about Sue Records' products for Record yes. Mirror.
1: <laughs> he was another mentor in the early days. Anyway, so uh, Pi shows up with these red and yellow labelled Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley uh, and Howling Wolf and Sunny Boy Williamson. EMI retaliates by slipping some of the product from the Chicago label VJ by Jimmy Reed and John Lee Hooker onto the stateside label. And so this stuff is beginning to come out. And then, greatly daring, I would order an album of an American import label of old blues recordings by Charlie Patton and Sam House and Skip James. And that was another you know, mind-blowing moment, hearing these these lost voices from 30 or 40 years beforehand. So there's all this huge learning curve, not a learning curve, a learning mountain, as every month I'm getting a copy of Blues <laughs> Unlimited or R&B Monthly, and finding out about these people who, as I say, very often I, hadn't, I knew about them before I knew what they sounded like. But that was intriguing and interesting and a great encouragement to, to further research. It's a common plaint these days, but when you can get anything at the touch of a keyboard stroke, the fun goes out of it and the sense of achievement and discovery. But anyway, that's uh, I was listening to this stuff and becoming for several years a complete blues obsessive. And then uh, at university, I met somebody who listened to blues, but also had records of American old time country music, and especially the famous Harry Smith anthology. And that for me was a, a genuine Damascene moment. You know, I'm I've been used to listening to old crackly old blues records, and now here's crackly old hillbilly records alongside them on the same compilation. That was one of the great points about the Harry Smith collection: There were no barriers. And it was as if I no longer had to think of music in terms of two distinct communities, black music over here and white music over here. I could now feel that I was walking down any southern town, main street, and hearing black music from one side and white music on the other, maybe, but it was mingling and merging in the air around me, and I was walking through this wonderful miasma of southern vernacular music, and that, for me, was, uh, you know, a moment of excitement and discovery that I hope I have never lost the spirit of. gone to build me a
3: long cabin on a mountain, so high, so I can. I'm wondering, really
2: we'll obviously talk about rural rhythms at greater length in a moment, but uh, I'm about halfway through it. And one thing that strikes me is that this, this, the recording crew who have come down from New York or Chicago, wherever, down to whichever southern town it is, would be recording the, uh, one of the blues men in the morning and one of the old time or proto-country acts in the afternoon of the same day, that actually what you're talking about, the black music and the white music, was being recorded by the same people at the
1: same time frequently. Yes, and in some, on some occasions we, we do have accounts that suggest that there was a certain amount of you know, interracial jamming outside while people were waiting to be recorded. <laughs> Amazing. Or, or of kind of you know, listening in to see what the other... The other lot are doing
2: yeah. uh,
1: and maybe stealing a little of it. There are many things that one wishes one could uh, have a time machine for, but to be in you know, Atlanta in nineteen twenty-nine listening to Gid Tenor and the Skillet Lickers perform and then give way to barbecue Bob. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That, really, that would have been something.
4: It think. is fascinating that because I mean, you know, old time country music, I mean old time music has that in its name old time, and it's very much a time capsule reading, reading your book, you're going back mostly two thirds of the records you say are from a seven year period, 1922 to 1929. And that's not necessarily true of the genres blues and jazz that continued and carried on in perhaps what seems from the outside looking in a more direct way, although of course country then came out of old time music. But I mean, how do you view Old time country music compared to the blues. You're talking about how they're kind of mingling in the air as you listen to them. But how how do you make that comparison? How do you feel one compared to the other?
1: Well, it's perfectly true that old time music was marketed as as old time from the start by by the the record companies in their press releases. The whole idea was that by buying an old time a, a record of guitar and the Skillet Lickers, say, or Uncle Dave Macon or Charlie Pool, by doing that you were essentially connecting with the music of your parents or even grandparents. Mm. This is not, on the whole, what you get in the contemporary advertising for blues. Blues does not look back. Blues is a very un-nostalgic music. So you would think that that was a huge difference between the two. And it it is true that many old-time country songs are inconceivable as sung by black people, at any rate, by black people who were actually listening to and caring about the words, because they don't express things that black people were interested mm. in expressing. And I make this point about the the very first record I write about in the book, mm. the Little Old Log Cabin in the Lane. It's all very well for fiddling John Carson and his audience to be nostalgic about Little Old Log Cabin <laughs> in the Lane. But, you know, the black people of the time would have been only too glad to have got out of the Little Old <laughs> Log Cabin in the Lane, even if it was to exchange it, you know, for a sharecropper's shack down some other lane. But blues mm-hmm. is about Moving on, whereas hillbilly music is very often about staying in place. And so that, yes, that is an important distinction. And yet all the time you sense, especially with the more creative of the recorded musicians, this desire to not be stereotyped as, as, as recreators of good old days. They're looking to progress the music and their own careers with it, no doubt. But a lot of these people were not content to be put in the enclosure marked Old time and they burst out of it as soon as they could. Sure.
4: That's interesting. And because because one of the reviews of or an article, a contemporary article of the time talking about it, you quote as saying, The death of Floyd Collins, Wreck of the Shenandoah, At My Mother's Grave, and other such songs which have had fairly widespread popularity may mark the initial move in the passing of jazz, which of course retrospectively, is a very amusing thought that somehow these old-time records might mark the passing of jazz, which of course then went on to become the predominant form of popular music in the 30s and 40s and continues to be a pursued form, performed form of music now. So it's, it's, it's funny, but it makes sense what you say that some people did see it as a boat that they could take onwards rather than just looking backwards.
1: And too, it's true that Old-timey music was enlisted in the war against mm. progress, essentially, which right. jazz yep. jazz represented. It represented progress. It represented the, uh, it was the possibly danger, well, it represented urbanization, the possibly mm. risky presence of the a more emancipated African-American population, mm. loose morals. It, it represented all kinds of things, and constantly we're having these Old hillbilly barn dance tunes being held up as as representative of yeah, the true spirit sort of, weapon, of America, A
4: weapon in the culture war,
1: absolutely, as against this suspicious, rather black, possibly even Jewish music, which is
4: jazz. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, how much? I mean, I get the
2: impression that the Great Depression sort of stopped both rural blues and rural white music. In its tracks, as a a recording form,
1: is there any truth in that? No. Well, yes. I I mean, it's a simple economic fact that it did. I mean, that by about nineteen thirty-two, thirty-three, thirty-four, almost no recording compared with the amount done in previous years Mm. was being done anymore. Of course, it's always a mistake to assume that people that we know on records only made their living by making records. If they were musicians, they might have had day jobs. As musicians, and more likely, they didn't, and they just. Played, but you know, they didn't stop playing. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that you do get this kind of extended hiccup, and then, after two or three years of the worst of the depression, the music business grinds back into business again with the cheap labels like Bluebird and Decca coming in at half the price of earlier records, and bringing with them a whole raft of new artists. And the music doesn't immediately change, but it starts to be aware of everything else around it in a way that earlier musicians weren't always. And so you hear the rhythm, the rural rhythm, becoming urbanized. It becomes more of an urban rhythm and music gets faster. It gets more demonstrative, more showy. And then you end up with bluegrass, which is a kind of old-timey super music, so to speak. Yes. You know, it's a super head <laughs> music.
2: And also in the book, you write about bands who were using ragtime and they became sort of proto-Western swing bands to some extent, the, the Texan music.
1: Western swing musicians were the great, probably the first generation of people that really listened hard to records for their inspiration
2: mm-hmm. because they were
1: stuck in Texas and Oklahoma surrounded by people that wanted to hear fiddle band music for dances, but they were men in their teens and 20s who wanted to play well they wanted to play music like the music that they were listening to in the in the record stores of Dallas and Houston and Fort Worth which was black and white jazz and some black blues and they were excited and inspired by this music as i don't i don't think you can find any similar example anywhere else of people who so clearly just set themselves a project we want to play jazz essentially jazz and blues but we want to do it with hillbilly instruments so to speak in a hillbilly setting so to speak and so you come up with this one of the great one of the first great fusion musics which is western swing which is western and swing Mm -hmm. and blues and everything (laughs)
2: I mean, it's interesting, the chapter on Jimmy Rogers, you described that as being genuinely new in so far as that his vocal, his verbal concerns, his musical concerns were closely cribbed to some extent from black blues that he, he had obviously listened to all his life. But there's a sort of straight line through from Jimmy Rogers to Hank Williams to Elvis Presley of this notion of white musicians in the South being very aware and appreciative of black.
1: Yes, that's true. And that Rogers, Hank Williams line, including people like Lefty Frizzell and all sorts of of other people, essentially is what's behind Merle Haggard and uh, Willie Nelson. That represents one of the two, that's one leg of the, the, so to speak, of the great dichotomy in, in country music, which is... On the one hand, you have that tradition. On the other hand, you have the family music tradition of the Carter family, which descends through other many other family groups to bluegrass, which is essentially based on that aspect of country yeah. music. And so it's very interesting because it stands for two entirely different characteristics. The family group, it's the... I think I once described this. You, you imagine listening to the Carter family of a group of people standing soberly dressed, standing around a little portable organ or something like that in a par- in a parlor, and the light is filtering <laughs> through the curtains on this scene of domestic quiet and and serenity. Whereas Jimmy Rogers is the man who says, "Anywhere I hang my hat is home, sweet home to me." It's the music of the the Rounder the the atomized 20th century human being yeah. on the road. You can't pin me down. It's an entirely other tradition. and It's wonderful. Country music, I think, has been sustained for generations now by the tension between these these two kinds, which split essentially at that famous Bristol, Tennessee, recording session in 1927, when both Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family were discovered and made their first recordings. Amazing. And you looking, with hindsight, yes. you can see... That essentially just creates the bifurcation of country music right there. It's mm.
2: fantastic. Tea for Texas, T for Tennessee, T for Texas, T for Tennessee,
3: tea for Delma, that gal that made a red.
5: Am I right in thinking that your book ends on number 78 of your
0: 78 records? Yes, um, it was, uh, it was a cunning...
1: A cunning <laughs> <laughs> actually, we saw I, what
0: you did there, Tony. Yes.
1: Well, I originally was even, cribbing even more even more blatantly from Neil McGregor. I was going to have the history of old-time country music in 100 records, but it was too big a book for the publisher. <laughs> so I thought, what's the next number down from 100? Uh, like, has resonance. Has, has re- uh, resonance, exactly, yes. So, yes, <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway, Martin, you were saying... No,
5: no, no, it's just interesting that... So that's the point where Bob Wills comes into the picture.
1: Yes, it seemed like a good place to end because it wasn't until I came to write that last paragraph of the book, really, that I realised in something like 16 and a half years, country music has gone from fiddling John Carson, scratching out a tune solo with with the just a fiddle to the massed orchestra of Western jazz musicians that Bob Wills is at the head of. And everything else has moved apace along with it, everything, movies, books, Everything about American life is racing at a similar tempo, and this is uh, it's, it's hard to imagine Bob Wills and Fidel and John Carson existing in the same time frame and, yes, you know they both lived at the same time, and yet the music has made such advances but you know the same is true of jazz and the same is true of blues it's just the country music has got such a reputation for. Staying the same, that I thought a corrective <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it should be administered here. Yes.
2: Actually, on the subject of it staying the same, I mean the very the the, the term "old time" or "old timey" music, which is partly a marketing mechanism, indeed. But didn't it point to the fact that quite a few of those songs may have been in the repertoire of rural white musicians, going right back fifty plus years, maybe back to the middle of the nineteenth century.
1: Oh, indeed. Yes. I mean, that was always held to be one of the great virtues of it. And this is the early press observations of these artists when they started performing in places where press, where journalists would actually go, Mm -hmm. uh, was that, good Lord, there's these people living down in Virginia and North Carolina and so forth, who are like uh, sort of lost Shakespearean era Americans. Um, (laughs) and this was nourished yeah. by, by, by Cecil Sharp, having come you know, a decade or two beforehand, mm-hmm. song collecting in the mountains and saying very much the same thing himself, which was culturally and linguistically true. But I don't know. I mean, I've, I, I've, I've imagined that a lot of people valued the age of the songs. A lot of the people who actually owned the songs valued the fact that they came from generations back. And it's very often part of the performance that you say, this is an old song. You you will almost very, very often find musicians telling you how old they think a song is, very often, you know, erring by centuries. But it's important (laughs) that you give the song credibility and status by doing that. But again, for a, a lot of country musicians, they, you know, they were impatient with that sort of thing. Uh, they wanted to move on to the next thing. Tony, I wanted to
0: read something from one of the three pieces that are going to feature on the home page because it speaks to the fact that you, not not uniquely, but almost uniquely write about old blues and old country records in ways that very few other writers have done it's from you were these two tremendous pieces in 2005 one about Uncle Dave Macon who you've mentioned already and one about Charlie Poole who you also mentioned there's sort of reviews of these two albums that came out in that year compilations and so you write when I first encountered Charlie Poole I knew hardly anything about old time music. I was a blues fan and my ears were tuned to the resonances of the slide guitar to men like Sunhouse and Elmore James. I wasn't about to be seduced by some white guy with a banjo. But once I'd heard that crackly, cackly voice spinning me a line, I was hooked, lined and sinkered. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, that's great.
5: Because yeah. it is not. I mean, you know, then. it's
0: such a cliche, isn't it? But I mean, it, it, when you listen to some of the tracks that you write about in rural music, I mean, it has the same sort of keening edge to it that great old blues records do. You know, when you listen to somebody like I don't know, Frank Hutchison, it's not so. The experience isn't wildly different from listening to Robert
1: Johnson. No, exactly. And that that was the that was the the one. I thought important truth that I've been trying to you know, write about, that I've been inspired by, that I've been trying to hammer into the heads of people who didn't want to hear it sometimes uh, for you know, all my writing life is that forget about you know, categories and racial divisions and so forth. There are some people who just do not fit the molds that you're using to, to try and fit them into. And there are some kinds of music that are mixed and multifarious and you know, get over yourselves that's how it is well your and very
0: first book was was blacks whites and blues published in 1970 and you look far too young to have published <laughs> a book you. that long ago yeah, uh, but,
1: <laughs> the but that was an, an, <laughs> yeah. an extended argument for for what I was just saying, I and mean, I just wanted to make make, make this point i mean it 's not a huge discovery. other people had made it before. John Cohen had written a very good article in Sing Out some years earlier about the black white folk music interchange i mean i wasn't onto some new discovery here, but the people I knew who were interested in blues were reluctant to hear that there was virtue in contemporary white music i mean contemporary with the recordings we were listening to, not with the Us, ourselves. And as far as I knew any country music fans, they had no interest in blues either. And I just wanted to kind of open their ears to the thought that maybe, you know, if you like these guys, these other guys just over here are actually doing something quite similar or interestingly, not quite the same, but, you know, there are connections and associations and don't you think it's interesting? And especially when you reflect on what kind of sometimes unimaginable social interactions might actually have have made this possible. The circumstances in which a Jimmy Rogers might actually have picked up songs, as some black contemporaries of his said he did mm-hmm. from them, I you know I can't imagine what sort of 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 a meeting that was. And I'm completely intrigued by the thought of how you negotiated this in the nineteen twenties or thirties. Fantastically tricky. Cross-racial movement to, to go and listen to the music of people that you that you don't associate mm-hmm.
5: with. In a way, you are an early algorithm.
0: You, were. <laughs> you are an
5: algorithm. Oh, are, <laughs> I, I, I've not been called that before. <laughs> <laughs> Thank but you. It, I think. Interestingly, <laughs> um, you know, if you think of someone like Char- in in Charlie Rich's background or in Jerry Lewis's or Elvis's, yes. there's often a black figure
2: almost invariably you see yes.
5: that's and another we're yes
2: gonna be talk, we're going to be talking about the Everly brothers briefly in a moment well, quite soon um in this podcast and they famously lo- were taught guitar by a black guy local black guy mm-hmm. they all the, that that's where they learned their music from so there's this one man who sat them down and showed them the chords and showed them how to do stuff it's something which has never really gone away well i suspect you get less of it today than you did back
1: then yes well yes um innocence is a very difficult difficult word to use in this context yeah. but there was a certain innocence around them that made some of these encounters and influences feasible and unself-conscious yeah. in a way that they would not be today
4: mm. one of the, one of the tricky elements of that dynamic i think though is that i mean when you think we've been talking about how some of the 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 songs and sounds and experiences might not have been that different in the sense that there's this poor, white, working-class group of people making one type of music, and there's a kind of similarity in that. But there's also there's a social element to which those people are being essentially told to hate, put down, disparage, lynch, the other group of people making that kind of music. There has to be a tension there, surely, that, that there was still a hierarchy oh, that yeah. was being imposed on a group of people there and it's sort of odd to think about them as as although they are contemporaneous and although they have shared elements i just find it difficult to to think about those kinds of songs i think you're thinking about knowing it that. slightly too hard i mean i think you've
2: got two separate things you have the massive racist structures of the south particularly mm. unequivocally there's absolutely no doubt about that which doesn't preclude individual experiences. Sure. No, no. No,
1: this is true. And I, I wish I could tell you how many white musicians I've met who have expressed great and warm, perceptive feelings about black music and sometimes specific black musicians have acknowledged that it played an important, sometimes a formative part in their own music making. And once or twice I said, when they said, you know, there was this guy that used to play around the corner and we would go and listen to to him. And I said, you know, did you ever have him around the house? And there was a long pause and I would be asked, why on earth would I do a thing like that? Yeah. And so, I mean, these are commonplace experiences. Anybody that's spending time talking to people in the South will, will be able to duplicate them. But, yes, it was possible. This is, is one of the, the most insidious uh, aspects of racism, it is possible to have, as Marx says, individual admiration and collective scorn. Mm -hmm. And they live together in the same person.
4: Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I found it really interesting. I mean, recently having watched Mar Rainey's Black Bottom, which is a new film about Ma Rainey, Mm -hmm. set in 1927 in Chicago, just because it's at the same time. And that's a very, very powerful film, I think. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but it is a very difficult topic to untangle. In, in all of this.
1: Yes, it, it, and, it, and it does tackle that issue of, of, of racism in the music business more explicitly than you know, most uh, musical yeah. biopics, so to speak, have done in the past. All the boys in the
3: neighbourhood They say your black bottles are really good Come on and me your black bottles
0: I did want to just mention the third piece that we're going to run, which is this excellent piece you wrote about B.B. King for Cream magazine. (laughs) Not the American Cream, but British Cream with an A in 1972, which is, I think it's titled something like uh, Will
1: Success Spoil... Yes, that's right. Not the successful, BB King. Yes. Ross, yeah, will will successful, BB King. I it's think a one, of those, piece one about, of those questions expecting the answer no, as they used to say in the Latin uh, <laughs> grammars. <Yes. laughs> but I mean, you
0: did write. You were one of those bylines that, when I was sort of starting to read things like Let It Rock in the seventies, and having read, you know, Charlie Gillett's Sound of the City and so forth, you know, you were one of the people who was writing uh, authoritatively and, and and interestingly about bb king and co and i just wondered how you remember that th- that time and how whether you felt part of a kind of small group of writers who were writing about roots music in that era
1: so far as writing about blues and and yes i mean cream was an interesting magazine because it gathered an extraordinary uh, cast of writers simon frith dave lang charles shaw murray I mean, all sorts of people got their start or got a a boot up the ladder through that magazine, even though it only lasted about two and a half years, I think. Yes, I mean, well, as with any group of music writers, you know, there was rivalry and backbiting and, you know, scorn behind the hand and all that stuff. But but a certain amount of comedy as well, I think. But there there weren't a lot of people that were just interested in blues. Like me, well, I wasn't just interested in blues, but you know that was what I was just interested in writing about in the context of a rock magazine. But you did—you never wrote about
0: Barclay James Harvest. Let's just let's just say that, <laughs> state that for the record.
1: And there was a kind of purism
0: about your approach.
1: No, actually, that's not entirely true because one of the things that I think—I don't know if it was Bob Houston as the editor of Cream or Charlie Gillett as the reviews editor. One of the things that uh, whoever it was did was uh, occasionally give records to people that weren't the obvious reviewers for them. And I remember in one quite long review, I covered both Carol King's Tapestry and Joni Mitchell's Blue. And several other, So, I mean, I did step out of my ground, as you might say, uh, <laughs> from time to time. Partly because, you know, if you wanted to make any kind of a scrape, any kind of a living yeah, as a say. music writer back then, you know, you had to be more versatile than just writing some articles about BB B. King. And and it was, you know, it, one felt that one was kind of exercising one's one's journalistic muscles anyway, uh, writing about stuff that didn't fall neatly into the 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 the, the, the intray marked. You know, this stuff already.
5: But what I think exceptional about the B.B. King piece is how clear-eyed you are. It feels very contemporary and very current. The things that you're talking about in the B.B. King piece, the race makeup of his audience, the, the way previous careers have gone in the blues and, mm. and how you kind of work the white fan, black singer angle, is incredibly well balanced and well, I'm, I'm and well thought out. If,
1: I'm glad if that comes comes through. I think it's not so much down to the writers, down to the subject. BB uh, B. King was just exceptional in that he he was somebody of whom you can ask questions like like that. I mean, who'd thought about things like that himself. A lot of you know, a lot of the blues singers that I'd met were were not people who thought long and hard about what they were doing mm-hmm. and how how to cope with different audiences. I don't mean they were completely without any any notion of, of of, of the fact that, you know, they would, it was different to play at a play at the Royal Albert Hall in the folk blues festival from playing in a Chicago club. But BV had been doing so much traveling in so many places for so long that he was a very sophisticated and aware person. And so it was possible to ask questions that ranged a little further, perhaps oh, than know. the questions one, one mm. asked about uh, blues artists because he was so much larger in a sense than they were. I mean, but it's yeah.
5: very interesting your piece where you kind of you, you make the reference to does he occupy the same place as Armstrong and the kind of edging towards a kind of Uncle Tom kind of thing. You're, and you're very interesting about that. I thought that was. Uh, that
1: was always a danger that, you know, the white society generally has a room for one black superstar in music. <laughs> and for years it was Louis. And then, as he got uh, a little tainted by the whole, you know, handkerchief and Hello Dolly kind of yeah. persona, then, and then Ray uh, Charles had been, and Ray Charles likewise. But then, when I think it's partly when Playboy started to pick up on BB B. King, and and he started appearing in full color advertisements in American magazines. That's the point at which he is clearly. You know the the Louis Louis Armstrong de nos jours. Yeah. I don't know who's taking his place. It's People ask sometimes, you know, who's the greatest living blues man, which isn't quite the same question. It's probably now, I suppose, Buddy Guy, but he doesn't have that no. reach no. into into white musical appreciation. Robert
5: Cray, but not a not no. a big enough audience.
1: No. But but, um, but then it's
2: also because the blues is so distant now. I mean, B.B. King was still having hits. The Thriller's Gone was a huge yes, hit. Mm. Yes, you know, yes. so he was having popular hits. He wasn't just an old guy, you know. Um, and Bill Graham was booking him into the Fillmore's yeah. and all that sort of stuff was going on. So so you know, we weren't looking at B.B. B. as something from the past, I don't
1: think. No and and he and neither importantly was he i mean yeah. buddy, buddy guy and junior wells could have been bigger even than they were but they seemed content to just go on doing roughly the same sort of thing that they always did whereas bb either through his own ambition or possibly at some managerial suggestion from time to time had a very open and uh, capacious attitude towards his own future he would try any number of things yeah and not just you know to, to, to stay on top but mm-hmm. um because i think he, he liked challenging himself or being challenged mm.
5: yeah.
1: and that was that's that's you know quite rare amongst blues musicians i think
0: Your blessing, Tony. I'd like to move the discussion on to two artists who, in a sense, kind of followed in the wake of old-time country music. Mark's already mentioned the Everly Brothers, but I'd like to just talk briefly about Gillian Welch who has a new album out. In fact, it's the first album I think attributed to Gillian Welch and David Rawlings. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan. I know Martin and I think Mark are both fans. I mean, just for the record, what's your take on someone like Gillian Welch who's clearly
1: steeped in all the music we've been talking about? Oh, well, I absolutely approve of her, not that it matters at doubt to her. <laughs> And I think David Rawlings is one of the most exquisite accompanists mm. and harmony singers yes. in Americana music, whatever you want to call it. No, I, I'm I, I have you know nothing but admiration for. Well, Gillian Well, that's Welsh. good
0: to know because she, they she, they need to pass the Tony Russell test. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I Martin, you that. I
0: think you were the first person who mentioned Gillian Welch to me. In fact, I was listening <laughs> back to your audio interview I did with Gillian and David when that first album came out, and I found myself I hear myself saying. A friend of mine in London saw you at the Purcell room. I think that was you. Did you yes, see them at I the did. Purcell room? So y- you had told me how brilliant she was. I really think you think with the fun. I mean, what- what was you when, did you hear revival when it came No, first I heard it came Mark
5: up? told me about it. Oh, yeah. Mark, right.
0: <laughs>
2: well,
5: I
0: went
2: to see her very first London show, which is a record company oh junket God, in, yes. I think, Soho House or one of those Soho, Soho clubs. Oh. Soho oh. House? So, no, no it was one of, one of the, the big, the fancy Soho. Ho, House. Pri- no. private, private clubs. It's one yeah. of the private right, clubs. really? Okay. Show. And our friend Tom Fenner, microdizzer drummer, took me along because he was then just starting his career as a... As a, a, a t-boy at bbc radio and i got a freebie i'd never heard of these people went up these stairs and after you know a couple of drinks and they just a room full of music business people and there's this a little stage and her and david went up on the stage and started doing their stuff and i was just flabbergasted mm. you know I, it was like whoa this is good they were handing out the CDs before it had been released. They were handing the CDs out at the door. So I'd come grab one, went home and played it, and just, just completely fell in love with it. Mm. Probably babbled to poor old Martin about it. You
5: Did wrote it? the phone to I, Martin within I minutes. went to the personal room where I saw these two people who looked just like Bonnie and Clyde. Yes. And they were fantastic. Oh, I, I, interesting. I've listened to some of the, the recent stuff, and I don't know whether it's... It, they're just slightly repeating themselves now. It's um, not as good, is it? Well, it's not. As it's good. just not as fresh. Or, mm. and I wonder how people. I, I suppose this is a general question: how people's careers move. You know, without being a changeling, or you know, if you're if you're working in a certain area that is a relatively narrow area, then either like BB King, you do country albums, you do you work with the Crusaders, you do a bit of jazzier stuff. I feel slightly that they're in a kind of. Uh,
4: a rut. Yes. I mean it's challenging with a kind I mean, with a kind of Americana that is somehow backward looking, where do you take it's that? it? It's old timing. It's old timing. Yeah. It's old timey, isn't it? I mean but that my, doesn't
5: stop me appreciating how amazing a guitar player David yeah. no, Lawrence no, no, is. And, no,
2: no no of course. I mean one of the things that made me slightly fed up with him, actually fairly rapidly, was, was a song on the very first album called Flat Black Ford, which involved a sort of fairly grungy electric guitar part and things mm. like that. And I like the tension between them using sort of a more modern sonic palette and the old timey sort of acoustic guitar and lap steel and so on and so forth. And that seemed to drop out of their repertoire. They didn't pursue that.
0: Mm. Well, I think T. Burn Burnett um, actively encouraged them to go for a little bit more variety on that first yes. record.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, I
5: mean, I like David Rawlings' drumming, actually. He's, he's a, <laughs> it's like the rich yeah, manual I, I, he, of, a, you, he, you know,
2: Sure. He's, a, he's a very good electric guitar player as well. Yes. you know.
5: Yeah. Um, maybe they need to do a full band record. You know, that would be
0: the. Well, they did do the yeah. Come and soul journey's got some kind got of some bandish yes. stuff. I listened. I mean, I went for a walk before we started recording, and I and I played a couple of tracks from revival. One More Dollar. I mean, yeah. is that not just one of the perfect things ever recorded by anybody? It's just <laughs> immaculate. Mm. And and then the the track that's closest to the old-time sound that we've been talking about, I think it's probably By the Mark, is so traditional. It could almost have been recorded in sort of 1927. It's yeah. fantastic. I love them. This, we're, we're running a Mark Cooper piece, which is, which is really, really good, in which um, Gillian, she's... A similar epiphany to yours, Tony, when you when you first heard Charlie Poole. and she claimed that she she'd, she was scrubbing her bathroom floor when a friend put on a Stanley Brothers album, and it was like a light bulb going off in my head. So yes. she's probably always in some Proustian way, always associating cleaning her bathroom with with bluegrass music. But she says something interesting at the end, and they both said this, and I think they they even made one of them said it to me, which is. It took, they think of their music as, as, as art, really. It's an art form. You know, They're not, says, we're not throwbacks, she says to Mark Cooper. The vocabulary stays within the tradition, but this is art. We're not throwbacks, and we're not just being literal. You don't have to believe in heaven or to be a farmer to be moved by this sound. And I think that's really good because they have had a lot of flack for being like middle-class music graduates. And at the end of the day, I don't give a shit where they went to school or where, or where they grew up their music particularly the first i would say the first first two albums it just speaks to me emotionally mm, it just yeah. absolutely gets me and um yeah mm-hmm. love them Bye. Bye.
1: I think it's it's a phrase I use in a slightly different context in my my new book, Rural Rhythm, yes. is that imaginatively true it's not that the thing is mm-hmm. exactly what you might mm-hmm. at a first glance take it to be or what it appears to be imitating it's in a sense false. If if that's the, the what how you're approaching it, you know. It's it's not the real thing, but it's imaginatively the real thing. And, and so and that, that elides yeah. the barrier between the real and the and the feigned. Also they have a new album called
0: All the Good Times A Past Gone, I think is just out uh, tomorrow. But why don't we talk about another act that clearly came out of this tradition. If we think of close harmony, a high, lonesome close harmony singing as being absolutely kind of endemic to old-time country music. I mean, there are many who would argue, I'd probably agree with them, that that Don and Phil Everly were the greatest harmony singers ever. And so, Mark, would you tell us a little bit about the Everly? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, it's Phil Everly, isn't
2: it? Yes, John Tobler in 1983, the less interesting Everly brother, Phil Um, and which he talks about... Ouch. He he talks (laughs) talks about his his so-album just done in London, produced by Stuart Coleman, which included players like our friend and one of our writers, Pete Wingfield, who produced uh, produced some tracks for Martin and I back in the day. Unfortunately, also Mark Knopfler. There's a fly in every ointment. But he does talk about... We'll listen to the clip... They're finally, after 10 years of barely talking to one another, there's talk of an Everly Brothers reunion. So let's have a listen to this first clip.
1: How did the, you, you mesh together again?
3: Well, we haven't quite meshed in that sense that I haven't seen Donald. I've only talked to Don on the phone, you know, several times. And it's just, it's got its own, um, uh, Don and I is, it's really a, uh, what you're seeing is sort of a public view of two brothers and uh, and with anyone with any brothers or sisters they everybody knows everybody your brother uh, knows you better than anybody in the world whether you've seen him or not you know and uh, as it um, it's got to have a flow of its own and uh, but I think the basic important thing is that we both uh, wish to um, settle that up. I think people would be very keen and very happy as and I think um, it would be very important for us personally. I don't want to uh, end my life on uh, negative terms with my brother. We used to have good times together But now I feel them slip away
2: <laughs> well, that didn't work. Interesting um, uh, enough, he's talking about what, how they're going to put the band together, because at that stage, Don had a band, Phil had a band. Now, in Don's band was Albert Lee, and Phil's band was Pete Wingfield, at least, certainly, recording wise. And what they did was they put them together. And, and Pete uh, invited me along to the Albert Hall to see one of their Albert Hall shows. It was a good show, great playing. You know, Albert Lee's a fantastic guitar player, and so on. Pete's very funny, he said, Separate planes, separate hotel rooms, separate cars, separate dressing rooms. They would not address a single word to one another off stage, and they hated each other. And what was actually brilliant was one of those BBC series, like um, Rock and Roll USA, multi, one of those multi-part sort of. Don's interviewed in it, and he says, "Well, the difference between Phil and I, Phil's right wing." I'm for the worker. I, I, I'm a socialist. You know, it's extraordinary. You know, they have, they have this massive political schism. He says, you know, I'm for the working man, for the union. You know, and it was just great, <laughs> great. I, which of course made me love Don Everly all the more. You know. Anyway, so you know, he goes on about that sort of. Toddler asks him about the failure of the last handful of Everly's albums. So let's have a listen to that clip: the the decline of the Everlys. Bye.
3: conscious of the
1: Everly brothers records towards the end of, up, you know, the late 60s and early 70s were getting less interesting to the, to the public.
3: Well, oh, we, of course, you know, uh, we were aware, but being uh, in that sort of, being as we were, looking back on it, y- you wind up in a matter of, it was getting more d- divisive, we had separate managers towards the end, we had separate, a, a lot of separate things and there was too many elements involved and uh, this is um, either a process I think we're, we're um, able to handle a little better now but then it was it was really a, devi- a divisive kind of circumstances going on and I think that contributed a lot um, like Pass the chicken and listen album um, the selection of materials it wasn't as jointly decided on it was more like okay rather than yes you know <laughs> and I think that uh, is, uh, you know, it's like anything. It, it, you can't do anything without your full attention and expect it to be uh, of the same kind of uh, quality. Bye-bye, love. Bye-bye, sweet caress. Hello, emptiness. I feel like I could die. Bye-bye, my love, goodbye.
0: I still think Pass the Chicken and Listen is a great album title. It's fantastic.
2: (laughs) It's fantastic. So so there we have it. We'll we'll, we'll play a clip at the end of the podcast. He talks about his two favourite Everly Brothers songs,
0: which will not surprise any of you when you listen to it. Leave the audience Uh, in suspense. Leave the audience in suspense.
1: (laughs) Stay tuned, folks. (laughs) Tony, I mean, uh, Everly Brothers fan, I have to assume. I wasn't at the time particularly, and I I admire them in a way for the the music that they based themselves on which was pre- predominantly the Leuven brothers yeah and i think you know you might get into some interesting fist fights in parts of the south if you advance your everly brothers the best <laughs> harmony act of all time of course in, in in a bar room full of Leuvenites.
0: i've you never know. i've never like floated that theory below the <laughs> mason dixon line
1: um like a lot of things about this music, sometimes it's the stuff around the actual music itself, which is in a way even more interesting. And that's kind of how I feel about the Everlys. I mean, their the father, Ike Everly and his interaction with other guitarists in that style, and especially the black musician that Mark mentioned, Arnold Schultz, I think is who he meant that, that's a, that's a, again there's a, a fascinating social situation of black white interchange which i think actually did have people all sitting in the same room admiring each other and playing for each other something that wouldn't have been possible a generation earlier sure mm. yeah 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 mm. well so that's the
0: everlease and i think it's time now for a very sort of uh, well quite an abrupt change of tack we're saying goodbye to two major musical figures this week and one of them is bunny whaler one of the Three original whalers who who passed away earlier in the week. So we're running a couple of pieces about Bunny. Inevitably, a great piece by Vivian Goldman when the first solo album Blackheart Man comes out, and we're also running a piece from Vibe 1995 about what happened to the Whalers catalog after Marley's death and the complete chaos of all oh, that. God, but yeah. Mark, just, I mean, I just want to ask you whether you remember Blackheart Man coming out, and you know what what that record means to you and what Bunny Whaler means to you, as opposed to say Bob Marley and the Whalers?
2: Well, I mean, I suppose that's slightly problematic because by the time he started releasing his own stuff and Blackheart Man in particular, that was an area of reggae I was moving away from. I was getting more and more into dub, the much more instrumental sort of side, side of stuff. I always loved his voice. Richard Williams in his His blog post. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Pointed out a wonderful song where he takes the lead and it, in the whalers in the 60s, absolutely kind of channeling Curtis Mayfield and uh, it, it, beautifully. He had a lovely voice, by all accounts, a really, really lovely man as well, which you couldn't necessarily say about his colleague Peter Tosh. I remember there was a very good documentary about West Indian cricket, and he features quite heavily sort of singing the praises of Michael Holding and so on and so forth. But w- was I fanatical about his solo output? Not really. I, I didn't really chase after it that much to be honest
0: i do think black heart man is a pretty great mm, record. A a record you know i mean i revisited it this week and it's very slow it's interestingly very it very slow isn't it we also added i haven't put this on the home page but rob partridge's melody maker review of that album when it came out which is very very positive yeah. but bunny says some interesting things to vivian in in this piece and he talks about what the Black Heart Man means and just how he as a young man grew up thinking that Rastafarians were would somehow quite sort of threatening and dangerous and you needed to be be quite wary of them and then gradually you begin to realise that the, their mode of life perhaps makes more sense than than the way life is kind of steering you in in the seventies, and uh, it's it's a really it's a really good piece actually, and yeah, love Bunny Whaler. love the early Whalers stuff, yeah. and the first sort of two albums on on. A, I mean, for, interestingly, uh, somewhere in, maybe in Larry Jaffe's piece from from Vibe, Chris Blackwell said at the, at the time that Black Art Man was the best album to come out of Jamaica. Yes, Vivian Goldman's piece it's Vivian Goldman's yeah, it's, I found yeah.
4: that I found that really interesting mm. as a thing to, to yeah. say and Vivian Goldman says he, he was right at the time you know and I think that's that's fascinating I think as you say the sound of his voice is just wonderful yeah yeah <laughs>
0: We're also saying goodbye to Chris Barber, which ties in with some of the things we started out with, Tony. I mean, you can't have. I mean, this this guy is is a is a massive figure in the story of how blues and rhythm and blues took root here. I mean, Tony, would you care to just give us some context on on Chris Barber in terms
1: of your fandom? Yes, I didn't know it. I didn't really fully take take this on board at the time. I think a lot of us didn't because Chris, having done what he did, was then off doing other things. But um, in the late fifties and early sixties, he single handedly really got American blues artists over to over to Britain. Famously, Muddy Waters in nineteen fifty eight. I think James Cotton. Um, yeah. Uh, so various brownie. Uh, brownie, of course, yes, yeah. Yeah. and by the time I was interested, which was you know half a dozen years later, this sort of thing was more commonplace and and you know it was who's coming this year, oh Sonny and Brownie, oh
3: yeah, yes, but chris yeah.
1: was was operating in a a pre-blues era, in a sense. I mean, this is before blues fanzines, before there were, you know, blues series on record labels. He was one of a small band of uh, probably originally record collectors. George Melly has some fine anecdotes about Chris Barber as a meticulous record collector with his 78s all, you know, neatly lined up on shelves. And that's how... He would have learned about about blues, I, I think well,
0: I have to ask Martin about about Chris Barber course, Absolutely. Because his uncle was in a band with Chris Barber. Well,
5: yes, but have, in fact interestingly, I found a cassette of my my dad used to do record recitals because pre the radio playing any of this stuff, he would he would go to jazz clubs in places like Dorset and and talk people through records. And one of them it was a really it was a great tape and, and it ends with rabbit Brown's James Alley Blues, which I knew from the, the anthology. But funny to think that Bill was playing these records in 1950s Dorset to people <laughs> <laughs> who would come out to listen to records. Yeah. Yes. But Bill, and yes, well, Bill and Chris put together Ken's band for when Ken came back from his New Orleans adventure from jail, yes. was deported on the Queen Mary, sent home. Yes, and and of course that led on to Lonnie uh, and Alexis Corner being part of the band. But Chris was, um, Chris was a mover, you know. He had great ears, loved New Orleans. I loved the fact that he continued his love with post-jazz New Orleans music. Yeah. You know, he, he mm. toured with Dr. John a lot. He had a mm. very close relationship with him. Lovely guy. In fact, once I, said, once I kind of was talking to Chris, and I sort of apologised my dad. Because at one point, <laughs> cause, well, cause at one point, Bill, the band that Chris had put together had my old friend R- Ron Bowden on drums and, and Bill decided that they should fire the rhythm section because they were too modern. And so <laughs> Chris went off with the rhythm section. They talked and they came back and fired Ken, you know. So <laughs> and, and I said, oh, I I think, you know, it was it, uh, I'd like to apologize for, for Bill doing that. He said, oh, you know, we were all so young and stupid, yes. he said. Mm. I don't know why we, we all felt so... So
2: you know passionately about all this, but of course that was what made them great. They were totally what passionate.
5: Young people
0: do, yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. I one very brief Chris Barber thing was uh, I saw, went to the Capital Jazz Festival in 1981. It was outside Alexandra Palace, and was it, was, it was Muddy Waters was closing the Saturday night, and it was terrible at first. Bob Margland's guitar player was bitching at the monitor mixer guy, and nothing was happening. Muddy was stuck in his stool; he wasn't doing anything. Suddenly it clicked, and Muddy got off his stool and started doing that little chicken dance that he used to do, and And then Chris Barber came out and blew trombone on Manish Boy, and it was just electrifying. It was was a fantastic show.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, We're running two pieces. Uh, One is with the aforementioned Max Jones from 1965, which is just Chris talking, but there's a piece that the late John Pidgeon wrote specifically for us in 2009, which is really a a fantastic piece on rereading it. I've forgotten how brilliant it was, called Father of British R&B. And it really does make the case very strongly for how, how important he was. Mm-hmm. It. You know, not only did he bring Bill Bruinsy over, but he brought Muddy Waters over here. And then he and his wife, passes Passerson went to Chicago. And Otterly, who was white, ended up getting up on stage at Smitty's Corner in Chicago with Muddy's band. I mean, yeah, and this certainly. must have been 19, I'm taking a guess here, because John doesn't specify the date. But I mean, I'm guessing it's, You know, fifty-seven, fifty-eight, something like that. Maybe later.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, without
0: Chris Barber, and Mm -hmm. well, indeed, without your, you know, without the Collier family, I mean, we may, you know, (laughs) who knows? (laughs) Who knows (laughs) where all this would have gone? You know, would there have been Alexis Corner and, and and the Rolling Stones? Would they have done what they ended up doing without Chris Barber? Probably. Possibly not
5: uh, possibly not and possibly not I mean you know much as uh, Lonnie has his detractors, I think without his sense of showbiz or his way of selling a song, then the skiffle thing would never have happened as big as it did you know mm. um, and affect everyone of that generation yeah
0: Jimmy Page to um, completely Mick and completely Keith. yeah it's, just, it's, it's it's a it's a final kind of lineage to follow through. Wow. I think we've come to the point where we need to hear about some of the pieces that have been added over the last fortnight.
2: Yes, briefly. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes. Hey, Jasper. So <laughs> um, right. Well, last week I chucked in talking about Max Jones. His interview with Ben Webster from Melody Maker, nineteen sixty-five. Mm. Was nineteen sixty-five, Martin? Was that the time Ben Webster slept on your couch? I might have been. Uh, breakfast <laughs> anyway, with Ben. <laughs> and, 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 and he's talking about working at Ronnie Scott's. He says, every night I go to work, the trio plays better. That Stan Trace is a bitch. He's full of surprises, <laughs> pleasant surprises, <laughs> which I love. That's great. Peter so Green, cool. Beats the nineteen sixty-six, 1966, by Kevin Swift. This is 66, said, just joined the Blues Breakers. He says, I just, people would stop comparing me with Eric. I'd just like them to accept me as Pete Green, not Clapton's replacement. We've got a very nice, uh, I won't quote from it, but a very nice review of Curtis Mayfield live in San Francisco in 1971 by Philip Elwood from the San Francisco Examiner. In 1990, John Morthland does a big piece on Rocky Erickson, Rocky Erickson. How do you pronounce
0: it? Rocky. Bani's, yeah, Rocky's Rocky. correct. I know it's weird. It, you'd think there's a, there should be a C there, but
2: yeah. it's still Rocky. And it's just great. He says, In the house, he keeps a Roland at a steady hum, over which half-dozen radios and TVs and a police scanner all play at once, providing <laughs> ambient noise. When Rocky wants to watch a video, usually horror movies, or listen to music, almost always on eight-track tape, he simply jacks the volume up on that particular machine. He is, as he puts it, just kick back and relaxing, having some fun. <laughs> right, this week going in, very interesting. Derek Taylor, writing for Disc and Music Echo, leaps to the defence of the recently busted Rolling Stones. This is in July 1967. And he does it in the most kind of elaborate sort of way. He says, we still fear so many other things, stupid things like parental disapproval, neighbour snubs, the jeers of the typing pool. We still have the horrors if anyone pierces the morning mask. We still take our faces out of the jar by the door he quote, he gets in there. No. <laughs> uh, it's time for everyone to speak for himself. He's just, it's, it's purple prose in defence of the, the Rolling Stones and their drug taking. <laughs> what a surprise <laughs> that Derek would, uh,
0: would take that tack.
2: <laughs> the recently departed Chick career on working with Miles Davis to John Swenson's Zoo World 1974. He said, I found it fascinating, exciting, boring, angry, very serene, enthusiastic, a drag, frustrating. So that's <laughs> chicory. <chinkering. laughs> it
0: covers the whole gamut. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Mixed. Um, uh, Mixed review. Morris Day, interviewed by Don Waller in early Weekly in 84, says, my grandfather used to dress like I do, baggies, double-breasted suits, Wide lapels and everything. I love that. Him talking that, about his, his grandfather basically being a zoot suit wearing dude. Zoot suits, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And lastly, Amy Linden reviews uh, a big R&B shirt at Madison Square Garden headlined by the likes of L Cool J and so on. She says, The simulated sex never stopped. Guys were thrusting their pelvises at everything from lighting cables to stage monitors. Was this a hot light on Times Square? No, it's the Coca Cola Summerfest show, Thursday at the Garden, headlined by L.O. Cool J and Naughty by Nature. You can just see it, can't you? I mean, it's, it's great. So that's, 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 that's my love. Was that fast enough, Jasper? Just
4: super. Com- super. Tremendous.
0: Super good. It was like bluegrass speeding up old time <laughs> country music. I'll mention just three things very, very quick, even quicker. Our old friend, Candia Crazy Horse, who was a recent guest on the podcast, mm. a splendid piece from 2009, apropos of Jonathan Wilson's Gentle Spirit album, but it's basically just Candia riffing about sort of Laurel Canyon and everything that California <laughs> means to her in a way that only she could write. It's fantastic. There's quite a fun interview with Dave Edmonds from 2015 by Carl Weiser of Song Facts. I learned just a few things about Dave and Rock and Nick Lowe from that that amused me and lastly a piece about Valerie June by Jeffrey Himes from 2017 and I really only mention this because it prompted me to listen to Valerie June who I hadn't really listened to before and she's really great really good she's yeah, really yeah, she's good oh my god yeah I mean so so it's so nice to have it just a I mean I can't really describe what she does can you jasper it's such
4: a weird it's melting put me on pot the spot yeah it's, it's it is a really interesting it's quite Appalachian, right but it's also
5: yeah she's got a bit of high lonesome but also with some kind
0: of undercurrent of bit of gospel bit of gold. Yes. Oh, yes
5: it's a bit of blues bit of, she I is mean, interesting.
0: bit of soul she's a she's a black southerner who's clearly got he's listened to the music we've been talking about in this episode and yet it feels so
1: unique yeah, yeah. Have you heard her, Tony, at all? Valerie June? Yes, and I've seen her perform. Have you? I'm not really convinced. No, okay. everything you say is true and relevant, but it also means that, you know, she, there's a bit of this and a bit of this and has she got some of the other, that the music seems to me to be a little unanchored. Okay. Mm. Unlike, say, Gilliam Welsh and David Rawlings. Mm. So it's it's looking for a home for me still.
0: Huh. But maybe that's part of the
1: of the sort but of I've excitement a lot of, of it. That because, would be the charm. Yeah, yeah. She's sort of no.
0: roaming through this landscape.
4: Jasper, how about your good self? I'll also just mention a couple of things very quickly. The first of which, just just for the sake of lowering the tone, which I love to do. <laughs> Although actually, the article itself doesn't lower the tone. Just the quote I'm going to read from it's it. Just it's, you, it's an, it's just a, you, lowering. It's just tone. me. It's our first article about Sway. It's a record review of he's a rapper, grime artist, mid-noughties. People feed his reviews. This is my demo by Sway in the Times, and I li- went and listened to it, and it's actually a really good record, and he's very funny, Sway. That's what Pete Phili's agrees with. He's laugh out loud funny too. Always the best way to make a serious point. Hence, on hype boys, when drawing a line in the sand between his own interior world and that of the gangster, these rappers couldn't see me coming, even if they were vaginas with spectacles.
2: <laughs> oh God! <laughs> which well, is the, the
4: tone duly uh, lowered. Which I just think is one of the one of the most hilarious lyrics I've ever heard. I think it's just I, I don't That's know.
0: That's a lyric, that is
4: from, it? That's a lyric. Yeah, it's a lyric. It's a lyric. I just think. And when you hear that's it it's so completely fun. convincing as well it's fun. <laughs> so that that
0: takes our rating out of PG into uh XXX triple triple X, rated. X,
4: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing the other thing is a lengthy piece that's really nice by Alan Light in Relics which is about Brian Burton aka Danger Mouse and his fascination with spaghetti western music. And he made this album, Rome, with Daniele Luppi, Jack White and Nora Jones, which is his kind of inspired by Spaghetti Western soundtracks. First came another quest for the original musicians and the vintage gear on which they'd recorded those landmark soundtracks. In perfect Italian style, some of the equipment rental would be paid for with bottles of wine the musicians hadn't worked together for years. When they first got to the studio, there were laughter, tears, hugging. Within a few hours, of course, they were screaming and yelling, which I guess was back to their normal state, says Burton. But it's great because if you listen to the Niles Barkley record, Crazy, it samples the soundtrack of a spaghetti western. And part of its genius is doing that in a totally incongruous context, which I think is fascinating. And I think the piece is well worth a look for that reason, because he clearly does love spaghetti westerns, which is a sort of funny thing for a very cutting edge producer of pop music over the last twenty years to, to be to be fascinated.
0: And by. he got in a bona fide Italian to be part of this danielle yes. i don't know who that is you pronounced his name so beautifully it was like <laughs> it was like listening to a sort of to a puccini aria or something wow uh, i'll
4: take that <laughs> He's a, a frequent collaborator i think of, of his and is they it? both okay. had shared this shared this fascination for for the for the spaghetti western stuff so that's my that's my couple of things too. excellent
0: brilliant lovely lovely stuff well i mean gentlemen I think we are out of time. It remains for me to thank Tony. Thank you so much for for joining us today. And please, listeners, do rush out and buy or download onto your Kindle, but you really need this in hard covers. Rural Rhythm, the story of old-time country music in 78 records, published by Oxford University Press. And you should also, of course, read all of Tony's other books, including the definitive Penguin Guide to Blues recordings from 2006. So it's been a real privilege to have you here, Tony. Good luck with the book and everything else. Thank you. I'm
1: delighted to be here. Thanks Mark, very
0: much. if you would just talk us out with the final Phil Everly clip.
2: Yes, it's the lesser spotted Everly talking about his favourite
0: his favorite Everly Brothers songs. Right, so there's your suspenses, and then, folks. So, <laughs> goodbye to everyone. We'll be back in two weeks with Adele Berte of the Bloods and former contortion talking about LaBelle and Peter Loffner, if that's how you pronounce his name. Um, we'll look forward to seeing you then. But meanwhile, it's good night from them, and it's good night from me. <laughs> so, good night. Thanks Bye. very much, nice, everyone. <laughs>
1: What's your favorite song that you sang with your brother?
3: I think, without a doubt, I can answer it very quickly. It's still "Let It Be Me" is still my favorite. Although uh, all I have to do is dream is is, uh, and I hate to say "Let It Be Me," but when Boudleau Bryant wrote almost all those hits for us, and uh, but it really runs between. Uh, I still think "Let It Be Me," and then you know, a very small point behind is all I have to do is stream. I bless the day I found you I want to stay around you And so I beg you
4: Let it be me That was Phil Everly in conversation with John Tobler in 1983, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Tony Russell. Rural Rhythm is published by OUP and available now from all good bookshops. The hosts were Barney Hoskins, Mark Pringle and Martin Collier and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper, Murris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com.